0: He e tēnei, nā te reo irirangi o
1: this is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. When the worst of Cyclone Gabriel was about to strike back in February, big names on a top rating talk radio station were downplaying the danger. It may well be coming in later on this afternoon. If it doesn't, then they have really done their chips. And even condemning sensible precautions in the places that did get hit. What is the point of doing this? Why? Yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen, it's going to happen. Exactly. I don't need to know. Now, back then, that was called reckless, and one paper even called them swaggering windbags. But was it actually a breach of broadcasting standards? Now, also this week, we talked to a leading local arts and culture critic who's pretty critical of the state of arts criticism these days, and partly blames blokes like himself. So what should be done to give arts coverage a new lease of life? And is it really just a nice-to-have now for most of our news media anyway? New numbers seem to suggest that it might be, But this week, the arts world also had to come to terms with headlines that it really didn't want. The Supreme Court has ruled Sir James Wallace can now be named for indecently assaulting three young men and twice trying to bribe one of them to withdraw their complaint. Charges were first laid against someone described only as a prominent businessman in 2017, That was RNZ News at 7am last Thursday after the identity of the knighted Rich Lister convicted a long time ago had finally been made public. Now his identity was described by many in the media as a worst kept secret and on Morning Report shortly after that, RNZ's Mark Amory told host
0: Ingrid Hipkiss plenty of people did know the name that the courts had suppressed. I mean we're talking two years ago when James Wallace, I was one of Many who received an email that went through where he actually personally by name went out pleading for letters of support to try and uh, ensure that he didn't go into prison. Um, this at a time when he was under name suppression. that was incredibly painful for a lot of people in the arts how, community. How did people react to that request? A horror, as far as I'm aware. But as Mark Amory went on to explain, plenty
1: of supporters of the many arts organisations and events that Sir James Wallace supported as a patron and as a benefactor would have been shocked by the news on Wednesday. Now, The revelation of a long suppressed name in this way always prompts strong questions in the media about the fairness of name suppression itself and it's been no different this time. And as Mark Amory also pointed out, Such was the level of Sir James' financial input into the arts, that this development also raises significant questions about the funding of the arts, though that's not the aspect making headlines this past week. Now, Coincidentally, how and how often the arts do get covered in our media had also been on Mark Amory's mind lately. But this week, in his final column for the paper now known as The Post, which was written before the name of Sir James Wallace was revealed, Mark Amory reflected on how the arts are covered these days. Like journalism, the arts ask us to consider other perspectives. Both our differences and commonalities become more visible. In the media, we need to report on it then with care, something we currently struggle to resource. Now, as the numbers of journalists and editors have dropped, arts media roles have also been the first to go, Mark Amory wrote, and the impact of that was shown in a new report out this week, which was commissioned by Creative New Zealand, after a suggestion from Mark Amory. Visibility Matters is a survey of arts and culture coverage, reporting and artist portrayal in New Zealand media in the year ended June 2022, and it was carried out by the media research company Icentia. Now, they found that 25% of our media coverage is about sport, whereas only 13% of media coverage covers arts and culture, and three-quarters of that is driven by stuff about TV, film and music. The report summed up the media coverage as diluted, And sparse. And they also found that coverage most commonly focuses on current or upcoming events, which is good for promotion of some arts and artists, but not others. And it also means there's lots of preview, but not so much review. Now, that analysis also found that while international artists were more likely to be covered, and two thirds of those, by the way, are male, some communities were completely underrepresented in arts and culture coverage. And when Anna Fifield took over the Dominion Post back in October 2020, she told MediaWatch she 'd bump up the amount of arts coverage and creativity.:
0: I think a lot of that coverage has kind of slipped away since the, the great days of Tom Cardi writing in the Evening Post that I remember from my university in, in early career. So I would like to uh, look for ways that we can increase arts and culture coverage in the Dominion Post and on staff online to kind of, yeah, better reflect all of what Wellington is.
1: To that end, she took on Mark Amory as a critic and contributing arts editor, and the current editor, Caitlin Cherry, has expanded the coverage in the paper. Now, the reason that Mark Amory is now parting ways with The Post is that he's got a new gig here at RNZ, producing and presenting a new Sunday afternoon show all about the arts for RNZ National. And he'll be doing that alongside Perlina Lau, currently presenting RNZ National's World Watch. But she is also well-known as a creator, producer and actor, most notably with the hit TV comedy series Creamery. Well, we'll ask Mark more about the news show in a minute. Also, that question of whether arts criticism itself is in trouble these days. But first, I asked Mark Amory if that news about Sir James Wallace poses questions that they now need to
0: confront. A couple of years ago, I went to my editor at the Post, Anna Fifield. James Wallace had been filmed by the TV1 News, you know, leaving uh, an APO the Philharmonia Orchestra performance at the, the town hall and he couldn't be identified. I, I went to Anna and I said, look, we just need to write about this. We don't need to name him. This name suppression thing is really hurting people and it was like quite clearly it was off the agenda for us to even go close to it so that it might even be guessed that it was him. It was enormously painful. The rules around name suppression need to be looked at. Of course there are reasons for it and good reasons for it. But, you know, what was it, 2019, when the media started to push for it here? It's continued to be appealed and appealed and appealed. And meanwhile, this guy's been going out openly to the community and asking for letters of support to keep himself out of jail. I just want to emphasise the pain and the hurt and the shame, actually, that's been felt through the arts community. I mean, I didn't know stuff directly, but, you know, everyone sensed there was something... (laughs) awful about what was going on, but the sense of money and power and the, the way the art world works sort of it suppressed it, We made its own silence. And I think there's a great shame in that. So the name suppression really um, enforced that, I think. It's made it very uncomfortable.
1: But for people who are covering arts specifically, I mean, he was a major benefactor. This is an yes. issue that will have to be looked at. Journalists who cover the arts and want to concentrate on the artistic endeavour, the creation, are now going to have to confront some pretty difficult issues about power and money.
0: I I think that's good. I mean, I think there's a lot of silence for artists um, where they don't want to bite the hand that feeds. And, I mean, there's a very interesting tension in the arts, isn't there, between where the money comes from privately and often it comes from... Uh, particularly in the last few decades a sort of, you know, what I call a hyper neoliberal model which is the very thing that has stripped artists from some of their basic income if they can play the consumer market they're going to be treated much better than if they can try and work for the public good
1: Well, there was some interesting research by Creative New Zealand about how artists make money and in some cases how little they make, even if they're prominent in their field, uh, which was of some interest to the media. But another report out this week about the level of attention and space given to arts and different kinds of people creating the arts. This was actually something that you suggested, wasn't it? The Creative New Zealand report, uh, Visibility Matters, that came out this week.
0: I did. And I was quite inspired by the work that was done around uh, women in sports and media coverage. I thought, why aren't we having a conversation about the arts and the media in a, in a really considered way, where we actually look at a breakdown of what's being covered and how, and the mechanisms and what's missing and what's absent. And in the
1: same media monitoring company doing it, I sent you, that did those reports on, yeah, yeah. on uh, women in sport. Yeah,
0: so there's another report underway now, which is to look at what is happening and what the constraints are and what could be possibly done about it. So that's to come. But this report is really interesting in terms of just letting us look at what coverage there is. Um, you know, the, the basic fact that sport gets a quarter of the media coverage in this country, the arts gets 13%, and then when you take tv film and music i the kind of entertainment side of things it goes down to 4 or 5% next to that 25% of yeah, sports interest yeah that's, that's three
1: quarters isn't it film television music three quarters, three of, the, quarters. Of, of that that 13% of of media space
0: when it's a consumer item when it's a film when it's a, a it's an album where there is a pr industry behind it when it's an event when it's an arts festival particularly When there is the resource to put publicists behind things, you get a lot of coverage of the arts. But the arts in terms of thinking about the issues, uh, the arts in terms of those who are less represented, and particularly the up-and-coming artists and that work of significance, there's nobody in the newsrooms. There are no arts editors, or there's very few, and there's very few arts journalists who've got any resource or time to really go out there and find out what's really significant for our country.
1: Well, one of the findings here, arts and culture coverage, quoting from the report, most commonly focuses on news about current or upcoming events. While this is beneficial for the promotion of arts and artists, it can create imbalances on forms of art and culture that are less event driven. So is this the phenomenon we see elsewhere in the media, perhaps too much preview, not enough Review and real critical. Yeah, thinking.
0: I mean, I think it also disables a whole different sort of thinking about the arts. You know, we're very comfortable with putting it in a box as a consumer item, as, you know, like a painting, mm-hmm. something that is sold. And, and of course, the media love it when something sells for a record amount of money at auction. But when we look at Toy Marty, we look at the arts, or the Pacific arts, far more collective interdisciplinary, a part of a culture, a part of a way of life, unless it's to Matatini, which we're seeing some wonderful coverage of, I think it is really, really disadvantaged because it doesn't fit those boxes. So I think in the media, and I hope this is something we can do at Radio New Zealand with our arts and culture strategy that I know is being developed here and with a new show, is I think we need to kind of unbox the arts and think about it more as a culture and a way of life because actually that's a very strong part of what makes our culture in New Zealand distinctive.
1: Mm. So just some stats on that from the report, seeing as you mentioned it, The Visibility Matter report says about 10% of all media items on arts and culture contained references to Māori arts or Natoi Māori, uh, followed by 5% for Pacific arts and culture and artists, and 2% for what they just call New Zealand Asian arts as the category. What does that reveal to you, those statistics? Well, I
0: mean, the Asian arts... Uh, statistic is particularly glaring 2.3 percent of the population is somewhere around 15 percent in New Zealand there's an incredible new generation of Asian practitioners in the arts as we saw with the Pacific Island you know the kind of Oscar Kiteley generation in the 90s we're now seeing that with with the Asian area but what it tells us is that we we, we we don't have diverse enough people in our newsrooms and I mean that's there's no surprise, but you know where are the Māori critics, the Māori editors, the Māori journalists, um, and particularly when it comes to the arts, we really seriously need this because I think there's some natural, you know, it, it's naturally difficult to deal with something that's not your common ground, it's not your cultural ancestry, but we need to, so, but we need to both bring in those voices more into it, into our shows and into our newspapers, but we need them in our newsrooms. Well, as
1: you mentioned there, people need the time to be able to do it because arts uh, journalists are often doing this as a bit of a sideline. Uh, Andre Chumko, your former colleague at The Post, yes. uh, the byline I think most picked out, but of course he's got news duties to do as well. And then when they do a little bar chart of the nature of it, you see that event-driven coverage being pretty prominent across different forms of art, all broken down but the little bar in the chart for what they've labelled nuanced criticism or deeper analysis <laughs> is really small. Is that a factor of what you said there, that actually the art's Coverage is not a dedicated special detail. Well
0: first of all let's be clear I mean we've seen a decimation of our media over the last 20 years that doesn't just affect the arts, so it affects like local sports for example or, or it affects investigative journalism and I think the thing is that the arts are nuanced, they are complex if they're not boxed in, within an event that's easy to, to do a light once over, so they do require resources that are being cut all across the media so I think, I, I, I don't want us to get into this point that the arts don't matter, I think it's than the media matters, and that the media has something of a crisis on it, on its hands.
1: But in other forms of journalism, uh, the internet. So what you're talking about, yes, the the constriction, the, the 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 shrinkage of established news media outlets and their resources, and their scope and range, and all of that stuff. But the internet has opened it up. For example, yes. when they had the, for what it's worth, the Voyager Awards this year, best reviewer prize. Rachel King, Steve Braunius, yes. runner up, Rachel King, winner, both of them for Newsroom, an online native yes. digital startup. Um, so the internet has opened up things for all areas of journalism. Uh, there must be outlets that have filling that void for the people who are really interested? Well,
0: I don't think they, I mean, okay, it's it's slightly complex. So Newsroom is a great example. Steve Braunius has run a really great um, area there for the literary community. Uh, the spin-off has done really, really great work. They even have a pop culture section. There's, there's people like Sam Brooks, uh, arts journalist at the spin-off, who's been doing great work for years. So there's little pockets. And then we have um, a raft of amazing online platforms like Pantograph Punch. It's, it's a wonderful thing, but it's, it's kind of s- segregated. Meanwhile, arts criticism has been totally, generally blindsided. So all of these senior arts reviewers have set up platforms in the last 10 years that run on the smell of an oily rag. So, you know, in theatre we have John Smythe with Theatre Review, James Wenley, a younger critic runs a fantastic cycle, theater scenes. You have Graham Reed continuing to write for the listener, but he's got his own music website. You've got John Hurrell with Eye Contact, which is a wonderful place for the visual arts. But they just battle on, as like Brawnius does, to bring lots of non-aging male, you know, white voices through. But they do so without a lot of support, so it's very difficult for them. And ultimately what we see is their byline many, many more times than anybody else.
1: The internet, seeing as we spoke about it, there was actually something you addressed in another recent column in the Post. You wrote, um, even the word criticism now seems a bit anachronistic, (laughs) and you specified that there was this growth of a kind of social digital culture that just hasn't helped that. Why not?
0: Well I think we all probably thought that with the internet that's for the arts that this diversification was going to empower us to reach more people but of course as we've seen with things like Facebook it's part of the sort of market forces and you tend to get these little clubs I mean you know we're now in a situation or have for many years that artists have to crowdfund for their work and the same people, the same community of friends are often the first to put their money in they don't necessarily get the spread that you might expect by just suddenly putting you up on the internet.
1: Jun- I- journalists are having to do that too, ones that used to be published (laughs) in papers and now having to self publish and Yeah, well exactly. That's what I'm saying.
0: It's not just an arts (laughs) issue. You know, if we want to support good journalism, we're having to actually crowdfund and, and and create separate um, you know, Substack and the like kind of platforms. So they've kind of erupted, and that's great, and it's really healthy. But I think the public media has abdicating some responsibility, particularly in terms of criticism, in terms of the fact that the arts demand conversation, they demand different viewpoints, and I think we are really scared of criticism at the moment because it has this um, older male critic kind of uh, singular authority uh, legacy to it. So this is
1: the thing, you think, that makes it seem
0: old-fashioned? To, yeah, to very others, much yeah. old-fashioned. And I think we need to reinvent it, essentially. I, and, and what I say in my column this week is that I think there's an opportunity for the media to actually use the arts to bring in more critical voices, more conversation that involves all sorts of different people uh, because I think people love opinion. I think people still love to hear you know, a really robust, critical discussion about why this exhibition or piece of musical play, you know, the latest Taylor Swift album or, or the latest Troy Kingy album is is not as good as the last one or is better or why, and we can have a great discussion about it. Culture thrives on those kinds of conversations, but they, they will only thrive if there are many voices. Meanwhile, and I think this is something you're alluding to at the moment, uh, we're in a culture at the moment where there's there's, there's what we call the culture wars going on. There's, there's a feeling that writers need to defend the artists that they represent, so that Māori writers need to rep, you know, to a certain degree need to to both promote and explain the work of their peers. But I think we need to still get to a place in a healthy culture where we can have many more of those voices that can both platform and critique.
1: So when you mentioned social media and you refer to a a digital social culture that has not, in the post in your column, that has not fostered genuine uh, deep critical thought. Are you meaning that social media satisfies people's desires for quick hot takes on things, including the arts, and that diminishes the appetite for something? It's a funny one because you say quick hot takes
0: because, I mean, I thought, oh, yay, we're going to have quick hot takes. Who are going to go, I watched this film, I hated it, even like a Hollywood blockbuster. But they don't generally. The hot takes are generally positive, or they're also the opposite. They're just really flaming things, and we don't get the thing in the middle. I always had three kind of rules as a critic, which I just would say over and over: is, is first of all, be honest. You know, if if, if you come to the end of the piece of writing and you haven't really said what you really feel, you are in problems. Be constructive. Find, if there is something good in what you've seen, say it, and 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 be generous. You know, just find that find those things, but. Above, above all, above all, probably be honest. I don't think people necessarily have those rules in their head when they're writing a tweet.
1: Well, you directly confronted that uh, in a post-column back in April on not cancelling criticism culture yeah. was the title. You put it out on social media uh, with the the challenge, if we're not careful, arts criticism will die with ageing Pacquiao men like me. Discuss. What was the reaction?
0: I had two different reactions. I had older male critics defending themselves, mm-hmm. um, and, and there's many of us, and doing amazing work. I mean, this is the thing, doing remarkable work and against the odds trying to bring in new voices. But it remains that the industry is dominated by said voices, and I'm one of them, in terms of having the editorial reins, And so it's not really their responsibility to change that. Again, it really lies with, with the mainstream media in terms of who we employ and how we do things. Anyway. Well,
1: because uh, you – sorry to interrupt you, but when you joined the Dom Post, you insisted on writing, as, as often as you wrote, that someone else, not like you, yeah. uh, should should write.
0: Well, you – kind of get sick of the sound of your own voice <laughs> after a while, you know, and I, and it, it, just, I just, it was just my instinct that we just, I mean, I'm passionate about the arts, I'm passionate about the way it does um, bring a diversity of different voices, and I'm passionate about the media and the way it does it. So for me, it was about bringing artists' voices and bringing different voices. Why is it the male voices that seem to be so prodigious? The Cicentia report sort of shows us that there is a huge number of women writing in the media um, about the arts. But when you look at actually how much content is being um, created, it's guys like myself um, who are, pu- are just pushing out the content all of the time, who feel comfortable in taking up space and they're being well meaning and they are pushing for the arts. But I think we need to kind of acknowledge that.
1: Now that you have the opportunity, the Sunday program beginning uh, in August. Um, unnamed as yes. yet, I believe?
0: No, it's still in the think tank.
1: OK. Uh, but yourself and Lau will be yes. co-hosting, co-producing. What do you hope that you will do differently that might achieve some of the things, some of the things pointed to in this report as being undercovered?
0: Oh, well, doing it with Perlina for one thing is is really remarkable. I think what the show needs is is a diversity of voices and, you know, Palina is is going to be in Auckland. I think um, the media has been very Wellington centric around the arts often, so that's really important. She's um, a little bit younger than me, and she comes from a film and television background as well as an extraordinary uh, amount of experience at the BBC and RNZ. I think I'm really looking forward to a bit more of a live sense of conversation, and that conversation will extend to the listener as well. I mean, again, uh, Lynn Freeman, Simon Morris, did an amazing job of, you know defending an area and keeping it going for 20 years. As I said, I believe there's an arts and culture strategy that's underway. It's nothing to do with me. It's being done by the organisation, and that is progressive. This is a really exciting time for RNZ to actually kind of really rethink how we treat the arts as intrinsic to our way of life.
1: That was Mark Amory, RNZ producer and the soon-to-be co-host and co-producer of RNZ's upcoming weekend's art show due to kick off next month here on RNZ National. And as we heard there, Mark Amory turned in his last column this week for the Capital's Daily The Post, reflecting on the quality and quantity of arts coverage and criticism and his own efforts to diversify the range of critical voices beyond the long-serving Pākehā blokes like himself. In February this year when Cyclone Gabriel was bearing down on the Upper North Island, emergency services and the media both worked pretty hard to forewarn people in its path to prepare and reporters in the thick of it made it plain that the danger was real and growing. Emergency services particularly are concerned that they may not get out by road and they're certainly not going to get out by air, Laura. But the tone from hosts on News Talk ZB on the 13th of February was a little less urgent, even dismissive of other media. One of the headlines I saw in News Hub was, there will be destruction. That was the headline. If you've ever seen anything more anxiety-inducing in your life, I don't know. So, you know, they seem convinced it's coming our way and it's going to happen, so we shall see. And when Kate Hawksby's husband and ZB co-host joined her later on her show, Mike Hosking took it up a notch, knocking the experts who'd also appeared on it. See, I'm listening to your mate, Chris, from the Met Service. He's now talking about 100k wins as being like a, hu- a hurricane. Well, he described it as ferocious. Anyone who lives in Wellington has lived in Wellington. 100k is a breezy day. You've still got an outdoor <laughs> table at the cafe. I mean, what we've done is we've got ourselves into this mental state now where anything is... At- I'm we reading- panic. And after that, later that same morning, Kerry Woodham picked up the ball and ran with it.
0: I was madly refreshing that stupid Cyclone app all over the weekend. I thought, what is the point of doing this? Why?
1: It's going to happen, it's going to
0: happen. Exactly. Exactly. I don't need to know.
1: Now, at that time, ex-broadcaster turned lawyer and soon-to-be TBNZ director Linda Clark questioned whether listeners to all that might have failed to prepare because of it and so did the otago daily times who later called the hosts reprehensible arrogant and insensitive in their editorial and also swaggering windbags while real journalists were out in the elements reporting on the gathering storm so suboptimal broadcasting certainly but was it actually substandard enough to be a breach of broadcasting standards well apparently not so far this week, the Broadcasting Standards Authority said it has not upheld three complaints that comments made during that early edition show by Kate Hawksby and Mike Hosking might have breached the standards. The authority considered that the comments were dismissive and insensitive to those already suffering the consequences, but the interviews with people who were taking the situation seriously and the regular news updates on the show reporting the warnings, as well as feedback from listeners affected by Cyclone Gabriel, meant most listeners wouldn't have been misled. Though the decision released this week by the BSA only considered complaints about that Kate Hawkesby early edition show and not the ones that followed that morning, where the hosts heavily and repeatedly criticised the closure of schools, even in Hawkes Bay, where the flooding quickly turned out to be disastrous.
0: And all the schools are closed in Hawkes Bay and, sorry, in Napier. Dear me.
1: And when Talkback Radio kicked in later that morning, it was clear that the callers were either already in full agreement or had been influenced by what they heard. And one of them, Brett, sent this text to the midday news host, Andrew Dickens. Take a bloody concrete pill, you clowns,
0: Brett Cleaver. A media BS load of crap. It's not media BS. Why are you saying that? What happens if you happen to be in a place where you were affected? and that hearing the report on the radio
1: saved you. Would you then call it media BS? Well, while ZB hosts and callers that day also seemed to think the media warnings were BS, the BSA also decided that Kate Hawksby's show wasn't misleading because Kate Hawksby also acknowledged on the air that she might be proven wrong. And in fact, back on the 13th of February, Kate Hawksby made that quite clear right at the start of her show like this. Did we really need to shut all the schools? I mean, I reserve the right to be wrong. If it comes in like a wrecking ball this afternoon, then, you know, they were right, and maybe it was just a bit slower than we thought. But I don't know. Well, that's a pretty handy get-out for a talkback host who doesn't want to be held accountable for their opinions. Even during an emerging disaster, freedom of expression does allow hosts, it seems, to contradict official information sources... Push back against what experts on their own shows are telling them and ignore what local leaders on the ground say as well, simply by reserving the right to be wrong, even on a station which promoted itself on the day like this. Your official civil defence station, live from the News Talk ZB News Centre. And you do wonder how they would react at News talk? ZB if the politicians and experts that they purport to hold to account simply reserved the right to be wrong for themselves, and then blithely claimed that any wrecking ball of reality following through was nothing to do with them or their precious opinions. As we've heard many times here on Media Watch in recent times, the government's big plan to make our public media fit for the future—the TVNZ RNZ merger—went up in smoke on the so-called bread and butter policy bonfire earlier this year, just before it was, in theory, supposed to happen. And since then, the broadcasting minister's political opponents have been suggesting that the government might try to refloat the idea at a later date or even achieve his merger goals by other means, like appointing people to the boards of the state-owned broadcasters to push through his preferred policies. Now, there had been suggestions he might pick former politicians for big roles here, like Tracy Martin, who chaired the board of the aborted public media entity, and even the former leader of the opposition, Simon Bridges. But in the end, that didn't happen. RNZ's chair, Dr Jim Mather, and three of its five other governors have been reappointed this week, and TVNZ has appointed a new chair with a finance and technology background, Alistair Carruthers, a former chief executive of Chapman Trip for over 10 years, and also the current chair of the New Zealand Film Commission. And the minister has also appointed to TVNZ's board the former RNZ broadcaster-turned-lawyer Linda Clark, currently one of the external experts who's investigating the inappropriate editing of online international news at RNZ and its online news editing process. Well, TVNZ's new governors and new chair have another big task almost straight away, appointing a new permanent chief executive, because the existing one, Simon Power, left TVNZ this week after a year and a half in charge. Now, here at MediaWatch, we would have liked to have talked to Simon Power on his way out about the direction and the purpose of TVNZ, now that there's to be no public media entity after all. But our request for an exit chat with the chief executive was turned down by TVNZ this week, who told us he'd granted just one interview on an exclusive basis to the New Zealand Herald. MediaWatch was a bit disappointed that a state-owned broadcaster would consider an interview with its outgoing boss to be an exclusive. It'd exclude other media like us. But it turns out that interview was conducted 10 days ago at the restaurant of Mr. Power's Choosing by the Herald's editor-at-large, Shane Curry, and it was published in the Herald this weekend. So by the time we asked for an interview this week, TVNZ told us the outgoing boss was a bit busy liaising with all those new board members and the new chair. This past week, nothing made more international news headlines than the unpleasant outcome of the Titan submersible tragedy in which five people died, and that included the worst ever maritime disaster in the Mediterranean just days earlier. And on Midweek Media Watch this week, our weekly catch-up with nights here on RNZ National, Hayden Donnell took a look at how the media handled that, including the Australian version of Media Watch on the ABC, which disapproved of Aussie broadcasters sending reporters all the way around the world for one tragedy but not the other.
0: So, did any of the Australian networks send a correspondent to Greece? No, they did not. What's more, Channel 7's only reference to the disaster was a 30-second voiceover on the news, and 7's Sydney bureau decided it was not even worth that and ignored the story altogether in its 6pm bulletin. Hundreds of migrants drowning in Greek waters did not rate a single mention. How tragic and shameful is that?
1: On Midweek Media Watch this week, Hayden Donnell also talked to Mark Leishman about complaints that our political reporters are far too focused on the National Party leader to the point of being unfair, and the defeated Chiefs getting caned by the media for failing to front up after the Super Rugby final last weekend. And they also talked about a lifestyle magazine on the supermarket shelves that's a pretty odd mix of fun puzzles, recipes and smiling models, bundled up with some of the most grisly and distressing misfortunes befalling families that you'll read anywhere in print.
0: Just as an example of a cover, I use the June 1 issue. So you have this grinning stock model. Uh, just a, it's a stock photo. It's a model that has nothing to do with any of the content in the magazine. But below her face is the headline, She killed her friend to steal her baby. And besides this grinning grinning model's head, you have another headline, Handbrake Horror, Split in Half, by My Car. So this, (laughs) this just gives you an idea of the kind of juxtaposition of content that's going on here.
1: That's all in this week's Midweek Media Watch. If you missed it, it's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll also find it for free wherever you download your podcasts. Well, that's all we have for you this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media after the 10pm news next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.